Welcome to the Littler Labor and Employment Podcast, conversations about employment and labor law issues that impact the workplace. Hi, everyone. This is Angelo Spinola, Littler Mendelssohn at the Atlanta office. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to be talking about commonly targeted pay practices within the home care industry. I am primarily a litigator. I litigate uh, and have litigated for years and years and years in the home care arena. I have defended many of these companies. We represent hundreds of, of home care companies. We represent the Fortune 500 companies. We represent startups, skilled care, non-skilled. We have effectively seen it all. So today we're really going to talk about what pay practices get home care companies in trouble, and how to protect against those pay practices and and effectively armor yourself to avoid or better defend these kind of litigations and Department of Labor investigations. By way of background, cases filed against home care companies are at an all-time high. Class action, wage hour cases, both class and collective, Um, are at an all-time high. We have more than 600 cases have been filed at a federal and state level in the last 10 months, which makes home care the most targeted industry for wage hour class and individual cases uh, out of all of the industries. Usually what happens is a company starts to focus on their wage hour compliance program after having gone through one of these lawsuits or having been targeted by the Department of Labor, in which case it's generally too late to deal with the issue that's being litigated or investigated. What we have really been trying to do and to emphasize as a firm is to really get out ahead of the litigation and deal with issues before they become problems. Uh, It's a lot more cost-effective for our clients and a lot easier to deal with an issue informally before Uh, We're faced with litigation, in which case it becomes harder to change certain problematic practices. So today we'll talk about the most significant and targeted pay practices and solutions for resolving those practices. So first we want to start with exempt issues and some of the exemptions that are targeted in home care. By exemption, I'm referring to those positions that home care industries utilize as being exempt from minimum wage and overtime. The concept is that because of the nature of the position, the individual need not be paid minimum wage or more commonly overtime. To be an exempt employee, the employer has to demonstrate that the exemption applies. It's not going to apply unless certain criteria are met. Generally, those criteria have to do with the way the person is paid and the type of duties that that individual performs. It's important to understand that generally you have to satisfy both of those criteria. Sometimes home care providers believe that if you pay somebody on a salaried basis or you pay them at a certain level, they will be exempt from overtime. That is generally not true. They also have to meet certain duties to satisfy the exemption. If they don't meet the duties, it really doesn't matter what you pay them. They're still not going to be exempt from overtime. 
you have probably heard about some of the changes that are happening to the compensation test for purposes of qualifying for the exemption. We'll touch on that a little bit, um, but we're really going to focus more on the, the types of positions that are being challenged as non-exempt in home care. And we'll start with the professional exemption. The professional exemption requires advanced knowledge in a field of science and learning. You typically have an advanced degree to be professionally exempt. Positions that often can be professionally exempt under federal law are registered nurses, physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech language pathologists, medical social workers, certain behavioral therapists can be exempt. In contrast to LPNs that cannot be treated as exempt or LVNs cannot be treated as exempt, home health aides, and the more rank and file positions. You also have to look at the state requirements because certain states have different requirements, more stringent requirements for exempt status than federal law. So you have to comply with both federal law and state law. An example of that would be California where registered nurses cannot be treated as exempt even though they can under federal law. So in California, your RNs have to be paid overtime. So the types of challenges that we are seeing in connection with the professional exemption are one, when you have a registered nurse or a professionally exempt employee who is not actually performing exempt duties. So for example, RNs who do rank and file type coding or who do administrative work in the office when your patient census is low. That kind of duty can be done by somebody who is not an RN and therefore the RN is really not relying on her license or degree in performing those duties and may not be legitimately exempt. We see that a lot when an RN is doing the same kind of work as an LPN. If you have an LPN doing the work, that means that you don't need to be an RN to do it. Um, so if RNs are doing the same thing, they may not be exempt. So you want to look out for that. There are also issues with respect to fee basis employees. So a professional can be paid on a fee basis or a per visit basis, as it's often referred to in the industry, instead of on a salary. There are a lot of challenges and limitations to paying on a fee basis that not everybody is aware of. For example, there is a tremendous amount of litigation right now on, in the skilled care world over paper visit practices as they relate to time. Is the visit rate uh, inclusive of any consideration of time. If you're paying a, a visit rate that is purely flat, meaning I pay a routine visit at $50 per visit, regardless of the length of visit, then that should satisfy at least the compensation element for a bona fide fee, which means that at least with respect to that portion of compensation, the individual is properly classified as exempt. However, if I consider time in paying that fee, for example, if the visit lasts more than two hours, so I pay an additional $20 to the caregiver, now I have an issue where I'm considering time and that may not be a bona fide fee. 
Also, if I am paying people for their office time and in-service or case conference time, and I'm paying that on an hourly or time basis, that may invalidate the exemption, even though the majority of the pay that individual receives are flat visit rates. So any consideration of time paid to one of these clinicians within the work week could disqualify them from the exemption. And if that ha is happening repeatedly, so for example, if we have uh, consistent case conferences or in-services uh, on a weekly basis that are paid hourly, then that individual will not be classified as exempt at all. So you've got to really carefully consider how you are compensating fee basis paper visit employees. In fact, I think it's so challenging to utilize paper visit from a litigation perspective, meaning that these positions are targeted so frequently that it makes a lot of sense to use a different pay method altogether. We have adopted a pay method called Salary Plus, where we're actually using the salary basis instead of the fee basis to compensate these clinicians. It looks by and large very much like pay-per-visit, except for there's a minimum floor or salary that the individual receives. An example of this would be if a ordinary RN is expected to perform 30 visits in a week, you may set a salary at 24 visits or 25 visits. Let's just make it 24 visits. If that nurse performs fewer than 24 visits, she's still going to receive a salary that's the equivalent of 24 visits. However, if she performs more than 24 visits, she's going to get incentivized with a bonus on top of her salary. This is something that you can do with salaries and, and paying somebody on a salary like this is a lot more flexible. You have a lot more options of paying them additional amounts that can be bonus, they can be hourly. Um, there's a lot more flexibility. So it's generally better to use a salary plus type model than a strict fee basis. And that's true even if you have the right policies and protocols in place for fee basis, because just because you have the policies in place doesn't mean that the practice uh, equates to the policy. Uh, oftentimes when we look at these kind of pay practices and we actually talk to the people out in the field, even though they understand they're supposed to be paying on flat rates, they'll make adjustments to try to incentivize the clinicians to take unfavorable jobs or to satisfy them, you know, if they spent longer on, on, a, on a particular visit than they expected to. There are other issues and limitations with respect to fee basis employees, like whether or, or not the visit is sufficiently unique to qualify as a bona fide fee under the law. And then there's also still a requirement to actually track time for fee basis employees to make sure that the fee is bona fide, that it equates to what would be a salary on a 40-hour work week. So there's a lot of administration and a lot of challenges. And given the number of litigations we're seeing on paper visit, you know, we recommend a different program. Salary Plus is one of them, but there are others as well. Other areas where we see some non-compliance and sometimes litigation over our outside sales positions, and this is both in the skilled arena and the non-skilled arena, 
where we have what would be the equivalent of inside sales being treated as an outside sales exempt employee. Outside sales uh, employees, true outside sales positions are exempt from both minimum wage and overtime. And what that means is that they have to be engaged in sales and it has to be outside, has to be customarily and regularly engaged away from the employer's place of business. Now, place of business can even mean that individual's home. So when you think about outside sales, the people who are marketing and selling your services, they should be generally away from your office, away from their office, away from their home, out in the field selling. And the concept is because you're, you're not able to track all of their day-to-day -day activities and they may be whining and dining potential clients on an erratic schedule, they're free from minimum wage and overtime. There's no obligation to pay minimum wage and overtime. They're often paid commissions as part of that sales cycle. So if they're making phone calls, they're doing it from their home or your office, they're probably not exempt under the outside sales exemption. We also see some issues sometimes with office staff, those who are actually at the uh, facility where there's an uh, overuse of the administrative or executive exemptions. Those exemptions are for management employees, people who are directly supervising, meaning they have the ability to hire and fire or have great discretion in the hiring and firing process or they're engaged in matters of significance and they're utilizing independent discretion uh, in making decisions that relate to the operation of the company, right, the management of the company. That would typically not be a scheduler. That's certainly not some kinds of recruiters that we see in home care where it's the type of recruiter that is setting up the interview but not necessarily conducting the interview or involved in the hiring process. So you've got to look at those office positions as well and make sure that you have everybody properly classified. I think you most likely understand that the salary levels are moving up from 455 a week to 913 a week. That will happen on December 1st. Um, that's the annual equivalent of $47,476. So that's an independent criteria, just like a salary would not rectify somebody who can't meet the duties test. Somebody who can meet the duties test of an exemption but is not paid high enough also cannot be treated as exempt. You've got to meet both the compensation and the duties test. So Advice on exemptions is review your exempt classifications carefully, consider the upcoming rule changes in deciding whether you're going to maintain exemptions or reclassify individuals to non-exempt. You can always treat somebody who could be exempt as non-exempt and pay them over time. You just can't treat somebody who can only be non-exempt as exempt. If you're going to maintain exemptions, particularly with respect to positions that are challenged often, make sure you build around those positions to be able to demonstrate that they are in fact exempt. And that would include utilizing job descriptions and making sure that job descriptions are consistent with the 
requirements of the exemption. You want to make sure that people are actually doing what the job description requires. You want to utilize things like self-evaluations where you can demonstrate from the employee, him or herself, that they are engaged in exempt type duties. Let's now move to non-exempt pay practices and talk about the most commonly litigated non-exempt pay practices. And let's start with travel time. Travel time uh, is an Achilles heel for many home care providers. It's very challenging to understand what the travel time rules are. These can vary somewhat by state, but this is generally driven by the Fair Labor Standards Act and federal law. The rule of thumb, typically, for travel time is that travel from your home to the first work location, whether that's the company office or a patient's home, is not compensable. Travel, intraday travel, so on your shift, traveling between the office and the patient is all considered compensable travel time. And then your travel from the last work site home is generally not compensable time. So anything you're doing within the day, driving around from patient A to patient B or from patient B to the office should all be tracked and compensated for non-exempt employees. That is employees entitled to minimum wage and overtime. Mileage, reimbursement for mileage cannot be a substitute for payment of the travel time and the tracking of hours. You've got to independently track the time that counts as hours worked, and to the extent that time pushes somebody over 40 hours in a work week, they're entitled to overtime. You can pay travel time at a different rate than, say, service time. You might pay it at minimum wage. That's perfectly acceptable to do. If you do that, you want to have a compensation agreement that describes the different rates. You also want to make sure you have a mechanism for recording travel time. The telephony systems and some of the electronic visit verification systems that home care providers often use do not track travel time. They just track the time with the patient in the patient's home. What about the time between the patient? You've got to make sure you've got a mechanism for tracking that as well. It's also, and that can be as simple as using a paper timesheet for non-visit time or non-client time and having employees individually track that time. Also, there's a, a theory, I call it the continuous workday theory. The lawyers that represent the employees call it the continuous workday rule. That tells you a little bit about the difference in mentality between those who defend companies and those who, who uh, bring the litigation. But the theory is effectively that the caregiver's home is really an office and they begin work in their home office by contacting clients, making sure that clients are available, scheduling out their day. So their day begins, they've already begun to work, and now their, their travel, the first travel of the day that's ordinarily not compensable becomes compensable because their day already started. They already started working. That theory has garnered some support in some courts. Some of the cases have, have ruled in favor of the caregiver on that. That issue, though, is addressed, can be addressed with 
a good travel policy that explains that there's no expectation for the individual to work from home. And to the extent that that's happening, there's certainly no expectation that they do it immediately before or after a commute. And as long as you're following that policy, that should be sufficient for ensuring that that travel time that's normally non-compensable, first travel and the last travel of the day, remains non-compensable. But it is very important that you have a solid travel policy. Another issue that we see come up a lot is meal and rest breaks and trying to track meal and rest breaks for your non-exempt employees who are entitled to overtime. That's very challenging to do, again, because we have employees who are working remotely that we don't get to watch and see and confirm that they're taking their meals. Federal law actually does not require that you provide a meal period. That's not an obligation. As long as you're not attempting to deduct from pay for a meal period, you don't actually have to provide one. So my advice to uh, employers that are in states that do not require meal periods is don't offer the meal period and just pay for all time worked. Uh, it's much, much easier from a compliance perspective. The states that do require some form of meal period, and this can vary based on whether you're a minor or what industry you work in, but generally speaking, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Illinois, Kentucky, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Nebraska, Nevada, New Hampshire, New York, North Dakota, Oregon, Rhode Island, Tennessee, Vermont, Washington, and West Virginia. So there are a fair number of states that do require some form of a meal period and providing a meal period. If you're in one of those states, make sure that you have carefully reviewed the rules and that you have a program around tracking meal periods. There's lots of things you can do. In some states, you can get a, a waiver, a meal waiver through a program that your state provides, where as long as you and the uh, employee are willing to waive the meal period and you pay for the meal period, there's no obligation to provide it. If you don't have that opportunity, then you might have to track the meals. If you're tracking the meals, make sure that the employee is certifying that they took the meal period and they're identifying the start and stop of the meal period. Because for a meal period to be bonafide, it needs to be 30 minutes and it needs to be uninterrupted. You also have to make sure that the employee really is uninterrupted. So driving through a McDonald's drive-thru and eating while driving, since the driving from visit to visit is compensable time, would not constitute a bona fide meal period. So that doesn't count, and that's why you want the employee to certify that they've actually taken the meal period. We'll cover one more common issue, and then I want to talk for a minute about compliance before we wrap up. On-call time is an issue that really creates a lot of angst for home care providers, exactly how on-call works. So if you have an employee who is exempt from overtime and you're paying them, say, a salary, there's no obligation to pay additional amounts for on-call. The concept is that the salary is already paying them for all of their working time, including time that they may be on-call, so there's no extra payment that's due. Often, employers choose to pay an on-call premium or an incentive for people to be on-call, but that's actually not required. If, however, 
you're a non-exempt employee entitled to overtime, then being on call may require additional payment, and it may require overtime payments. Assuming that you're not on call in the, in the manner that you are required to, say, be at the uh, employer's place of business or you're so restricted that you really can't engage in personal activities, the mere fact of being on call does not count as actual working time. So if I'm on call for the weekend and I'm able to be at my home and relatively free from duty unless I'm called, uh, let's say I'm, I might need to respond to a call within an hour, um, that's the obligation, you don't have to pay me for just being on call. However, when I am called and I actually perform work, that's extra working time that I must record and you must pay me for. If I've already worked a 40-hour schedule and this weekend on call puts me into overtime, you've got to pay me the overtime. You cannot use an on-call premium as a substitute for paying me for the hours that I work. So if you're paying me $50 to be on call, you can't say, well, I don't have to track and pay your working time because I've already paid you $50 to be on call. The $50 was a premium just to get me to be on call. You're going to pay that to me whether you call me or not, just for me to be in town and be available. So that can't count as hours worked. Also, the on-call premium, that $50, has to be included in the regular rate for determining what my overtime rate even is. So it will increase the overtime obligation you have. You wouldn't just look at what my hourly rate is. You'd look at my hourly rate plus that premium that I received to figure out what is my overtime rate. So it's a little trickier for non-exempt employees. And if you can, you wouldn't want to use your exempt staff for on-call duties. If you're using somebody non-exempt, make sure you're complying with these rules. Okay, so last thing I want to discuss a little bit is the compliance program that you should have for pay practices, for wage and hour concerns. As I mentioned, this is in my mind, the biggest labor and employment risk that home care providers face is the possibility of a wage error class action or a DOL investigation. It's the more common kind of litigation, the more expensive kind of litigation from a, a cost perspective, and it also generally leads to the most damages, back wages to the individual employee or group of employees. Yet when you look at compliance, home care providers often have a good compliance program around discrimination, equal opportunity, harassment type issues, but not wage hour. So it's very important that your focus really be on wage hour and you make sure that you build a compliance program that is as strong as what you have for discrimination and, and harassment issues. What does that entail? It starts with your policies and procedures, making sure that you've got the right things in place from a timekeeping perspective, where you're capturing all time work, time certification perspective, where employees are certifying and agreeing that, that they have recorded all of their time worked, 
Um, having the right policies and procedures in place, a travel policy is very important. Uh, a sleep agreement is important to the extent that you're utilizing live-in or extended shift services. Compensation agreements, very important, especially if you're using different rates for travel time versus um, service time, so you can establish what rate applies when. You want to have a, a system in place where employees understand what working time is, what their expectations are as far as recording time, and you have evidence that they are, in fact, doing what they're supposed to be doing. Once you put those policies and procedures in place, it's important to train and make sure everybody understands what they are. A new handbook doesn't do you any good if nobody reads it and understands it. It actually might cut against you if we're not complying with the policies that we put in place. So you start by training managers. After you've trained the managers, you want to make sure that you're training your non-exempt employees. The managers are going to be supervising the employees, so you want them to understand the rules first. You also want to have a strong complaint procedure in place to the extent that there is an issue. Somebody uh, has unrecorded working time or they've got an issue with a meal break. You want them to have an opportunity and ability to complain about that or raise that issue within the company as opposed to going to the Department of Labor or seeking out a lawyer because they don't feel that they have a voice within their own company. And finally, you want to make sure that you're auditing these practices. You're looking at your compliance program and it's working the way that you intended. That's periodically checking how people are recording time, looking at other electronic touches to, to make sure that we don't have uh, individuals that are sending emails outside of recorded working time or that we see that they're working on visit notes when they're supposed to be taking a meal break. So it's those sorts of things that you want to put in place. For those who have a limited budget for this type of thing, Littler does have a home care toolkit. You can find information on the toolkit on our website, www.littler.com, that has the policies and procedures that we've been talking about, timesheets, compensation agreements, a lot of state-specific guidance, uh, and can really help you to develop and build your compliance program. Thank you all very much for your time, and uh, we look forward to chatting soon. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.